0: Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. The Political Brain The Role of Emotion in Deciding the Fate of the Nation might have been published in 2007, but its message is as relevant as ever, especially as Campaign 2024 ramps up. Author Drew Weston, a professor of psychology and psychiatry at Emory University, has for 20 years explored the role of emotions and how the brain processes information. That's true in life and in politics. And that explains why Weston has advised or worked as a political consultant for presidential, congressional, and state-level Democratic candidates, progressive and labor organizations, and Fortune 500 companies. How does a better understanding of the mind and brain translate into better campaign strategy and more compelling messages. Issues from abortion to guns to race, as controversial as they are, can they be solved with the correct messaging? Who is doing it right? And who could most use his help right now? Welcome to Equal Time, Professor Drew Weston. Thank you very much, Ray. Your book, The Political Brain, and much of your work Challenge the way some people think about how voters feel about candidates and issues. People say, well, they look at the issues, they reason it out, they weigh the pros and cons, and come to some sort of dispassionate decision. But it's about something else, right?
1: Yeah, it really is. And, and it's about our, mostly about our gut level feelings about candidates. And in a funny way, uh, you know, we like to think of that as being a, uh, uh, there's this term, low information voters, you know, that low-information voters are those people we look down on who, who don't know much about what's going on. Turns out that the, the same gut that they use is the gut that we use Is people who are political junkies.
0: <laughs> well, you've counseled primarily Democratic candidates. Is that because they're the ones who need your help the most?
1: <laughs> <laughs> they, they are, well, for two or three reasons. One is they are certainly the most remedial uh, <laughs> candidates. I mean, you know, I never thought I would ever use Trump and and well or good in the same sentence. But but the thing that Trump understands that he does does well is, uh, no, he does it. He's a psychopath, so he does it extremely well in a very <laughs> in a very particular way that most of us who aren't psychopaths can't do. The way you know people say that psychopaths have no empathy for other people, he zeroes right in on what it is that other people are needing and wanting and and hoping for. So in in, in a in a way that you know, lacks moral guardrails. But but we 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 you know those of us on the left and I thought when I wrote the book that this was a dem- this was a, a democratic problem, an American problem. Turns out when I did consulting it's all over the world that everywhere you go, the left is cerebral, the left is all about thoughts and feelings. I mean thoughts and policies and ten point plans. And the right is all about uh, what you ought to feel, and what values ought to get evoked, and uh, they beat us because of it.
0: Okay, I just want to point out that psychopath is Drew's words, not mine. <laughs> well, exactly. what, what does the right do right? Uh, you know, uh, well, well,
1: since Trump, they haven't done much right because you know, before Trump, they could, they had uh, the uh, American Enterprise Institute and the Heritage Foundation would feed them these. Talking points, and they—I mean, they still do, but I don't know if they use them because uh, what they used to do is they would all march and march in, you know, in lockstep, and John uh, John Stewart could do those great montages of uh, death panel, death panel, death panel, death panel, where everyone's saying the same thing uh, because they were just taking their marching orders. Uh, Democrats and and progressives don't like to—they don't like to use anybody else's words. They like to think things out carefully themselves. That's all—it's all a great virtue. Uh, except for the fact that um, that very often op- they don't they don't like to use words that have ever been tested uh, they don't like to use anybody else's words even if other people's words are working better than theirs to describe what it is that they're trying to get uh, people on board about but what i was going to say is before trump you know Republicans are on the same page now now they're just following trump's random neural firings whatever he says one day they're trying to match at the neck. So they're, they're, uh, they're as bad as we are right now, which is, uh, uh, thank God for that.
0: How does that create a problem where he has these thoughts that they're trying to follow that aren't consistent, but he just throws these things out there and then they race to catch up? You know,
1: um, in the past, uh, I mean, Ronald Reagan was a master of this and people don't realize that Ronald Reagan was actually a product of, uh, of about, uh, 15 years of work by the, uh, uh, by the right wing, where they spent a fortune on think tanks, uh, to, uh, that, a, a Republican or a conservative think tank is a feel tank or a fuel tank. Its goal is to get people to feel something. Uh, whereas a progressive think tank is purely a think tank policy tank, uh, uh, tank the candidates tank it has nothing to do with what elections are really about which is you know not just getting people to think what you think but getting them to feel about it the way you feel because if you think about you know any just any important decision you make in your life do you, did you like like if you're married did you pick a did you pick a husband by going down a list of saying let's see he's this he's this well I, i'd give him a seven on that i'd give him a four on this you know i mean we can all <laughs> did that stuff. But what we really did was we just had a gut level feeling of chemistry. We have the same kind of chemistry with candidates and with parties.
0: Well, not to get too personal, but my husband and I, quality wise, we're very different in many ways, but you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know Democrats uh, with much frustration often complain that voters vote for Republicans and against their own interests because of the policies they espouse, but you don't see it that way no um
1: i think um i they certainly often do uh i mean the if you're uh if you're working class and you're voting for a party that consistently votes for tax cuts for the rich uh you're voting against your interest uh but um but you know uh democrats do the same thing you know if you're if you're making over $250,000 and you're voting democratic you're pretty stupid <laughs> you know, from you know, from a from a rational. Uh, well, actually, it's now four fifty, uh, th- thanks to President Biden. But but it, it's uh, you know, it, you're voting against your self interest when you do that as well. All, all of us are really first and foremost values voters, and second, uh, we are we are interest voters. Those are the two things that draw us. It's it's really two questions are are um, front of mind for voters. One is. Does this person uh, understand and care about people like me, and does this person share my values? And if the answer to either of those questions is no, you're in a lot of trouble. But if you think about those two questions: Do they understand, and care about people like me? Do they share my values? You know, whether you're a high information voter or whether you're watching uh, Rachel Maddow every Monday at Monday night, uh, uh, or CNN, or your favorite your favorite venue, you know, you're um um. You're asking those same
0: questions. Well, let's get down to 2024 because people are interested in that we're right in the middle of what's going to be a very interesting election season. Not just at the top of the ticket, but all the way down the line. How do you see your message being relevant in this upcoming election?
1: Well, we're we're up against the candidate at, at the top of the ticket. We're up against the candidate who uh, who. Has been, but is not really now a master of emotion. You know, right now he is getting more and more unhinged. You know, his politics of grievance works with his base, uh, but as we saw in 2020, uh, as we saw in you know, really every election since 2016, people uh, in the uh, in the in the suburbs of Atlanta. I watched that carefully because you know, from being from Atlanta, uh, I was. I was watching what was happening in the happening in the uh, in the in the suburbs of uh, DeKalb County, uh, Fulton County, uh, uh, places that are we traditionally, we, we typically think of them as counties that are heavily uh, heavily African American, but they're actually about half white, um, middle class, upper middle class, largely Republican leaning on those sides, uh, and uh, or or at least uh, independent leaning. And those people went for uh, went for President Biden. Um, and they also went for uh, I mean, it went for remarkably for uh, uh, for Raphael Warnock, um, uh, which was absolutely wonderful. And uh, thank God uh, that he was running against Herschel Walker. Yeah, uh, because he's one of our best senators, if you ask me. But uh, but I'm not sure Georgians would have uh, would have would have put him in if he'd been up against uh uh, say the lieutenant governor of Georgia, who's mm-hmm. the guy who actually speaks well and is not a moron. So,
0: well, you know, I just want to. And a reminder to you: I am a journalist. Uh, we have yeah. said that uh, Professor Weston works for Democratic candidates, but I'm trying to cover the waterfront here. How about Biden? Uh, how is that relevant for the president? Because obviously, in 2020, a lot of voters had a clear choice. Uh, He is older, and there's that message that Republicans are putting out, although the two candidates are similar in age. And he is not, doesn't have the, I would say, charisma of his former, when he was vice president, President Barack Obama. So what would be that advice for him? How do you think he is shaping up as far as this messaging battle?
1: Just go back to something you said about being a journalist. I will now pretend that I'm one. Um, I actually (laughs) I actually do usually tell people forewarned as forearm that I do work uh, on the progressive side of the aisle because i i uh, I work for people whose values I share uh, 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 but the the um uh, you know aside from um, uh, uh, people voting for people who they feel like understand care about people like them and who share their values they also look for two uh, two things in a leader and interestingly a colleague of mine at Emory, who's a um uh, probably the world's leading primatologist, Franz I uh, did this brilliant TED Talk on what is, a, what is an alpha male? And interestingly, um, I heard this talk in like 2020, uh, and it mirrored something that I wrote about in the political brain about, uh, about uh, people's selection of leaders, that they're looking for two things, strength and warmth. And if you think about, uh, about when Barack Obama was at his best in his speeches, he did strength and warmth really well. He did both of them. Bill Clinton, strength and warmth. Ronald Reagan, strength and warmth. Um, uh, interestingly, you know, you look back at uh, even, I hate to say this, George W. Bush um, projected strength and warmth. Now, he—he he, it would have helped if he'd known that Iran and Iraq are two different countries because he used his strength in the wrong place. But uh, but he projected strength and warmth. Um, if you look at at Hillary Clinton, strength, no warmth. You look at Kerry, strength, no warmth. Uh, you look at at Al Gore, um, brilliant uh, in terms of he was right about everything, and he was, and he showed he showed a kind of a uh, he showed a kind of a a, a, um, a bravery, a courage that we rarely see in politicians. That he took on. He took on climate change, which was the most unpopular thing when he was taking it on. And he actually was one of the two first Democrats who came out against the war in Iraq. And he came out against it right away because he actually knew who bin Laden was. And he knew he wasn't connected to, you know, Osama bin Laden, I mean, to, to, uh, to uh, uh, Saddam Hussein. Uh, but he he was pretty weak on both strength and warmth in his in his speeches. If you look at, at President Biden. You couldn't do warmth better. I mean, there's a man who makes you feel like he does understand you. He understands the trials and tribulations of your family. He's been there. I mean, no one has been no one's been hurt more than than Joe Biden in his lifetime, losing a wife, losing a child, having another child with addictions. I mean, he, he's had a he's had a rough time of it, and it and and it it, it shows in his just phenomenal empathy. But you know. If you think about a president who has been strong in his policy, is there anyone else who could have taken the second most powerful leader in the world, Vladimir Putin, and completely isolated him? Is there anyone else who could have fought the the, the largest land war in Europe since, since 1945 and united the world behind it, united NATO behind it? after after Trump had destroyed NATO. Is there anyone else who could have passed an infrastructure bill with a one-vote majority? And that's including two Democrats, you know, Manchin and Cinema, who are uh, uh, were pretty iffy as Democrats. Um, that takes a kind of a strength that um, that that unfortunately he doesn't often project in his speeches. And you know if, if I were working with President Biden directly I would be working with him on his nonverbals, uh, in his speeches, uh, in, uh, he's done it a few times. He did it in both of his democracy speeches. He did it beautifully. He did it in his last state of the union when he was like going back and forth with the Republicans, he beat the crap out of them and he looked strong, you know, but, but it's that, um, uh, there, there are lines that he, that he needs to deliver where you see his teeth. Uh, and I don't mean uh, false teeth. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I mean he's yeah. the, you know, I'm teasing. Doesn't have false teeth. But, but but uh, you know, where you see that, that, that he can throw a punch and he can do it, but he doesn't like to because he's a kind guy, you know. But people like to see both in their leaders.
0: It's interesting that you brought up Gore because when he took that issue and he did an inconvenient truth and he had a passion about it, It had a wonky warmth and strength, in a sense, because he was so uh, committed to that issue, even though it was an issue that a lot of people didn't have on their radar. So can this work on even the most contentious of issues, like race, like guns, like abortion, like the Israel-Hamas war?
1: It's a great question. Let's go back to Al Gore for a second and an Inconvenient Truth, because I I think that's such a great example where— He had just run an inconvenient campaign, you know, where his his advisors had told him, don't talk about climate change. I mean, it was it was the absolute worst advice you can possibly give a candidate. Take the issue you are most passionate about and don't talk about it. Imagine if he had said to people in in Florida. You know, I know many of you don't believe in this thing. I didn't believe in it, except I learned about it from a professor of mine as an undergrad, you know, like over 35 years ago, he told us about it. And now I've been watching what looks like a prophecy just come true year after year after year. And now we're looking at the 10th hottest year in recorded history has just happened. For those of you who own own, uh, land and a beach home right on the beachfront in Florida, um, don't you want to leave that land to your, uh, to your children and your grandchildren? And if, if I'm wrong, I'd be happy to be wrong. But if I'm right, do you really want to uh, make that mistake? Isn't that something you want to leave in the family for your kids? Is it really worth taking that chance? Now, he lost by 500 votes in Florida. Imagine what, what he might have picked up along the Florida coasts if he had made that pitch. Uh, and now, so now you go back to, you go back to, uh, to now and to the kind of issues that, that, um, that you're raising, let's start with race. Cause that's a really good one.
0: That's oh yeah. <laughs> one,
1: that's one where, where we on the left unnecessarily alienate white working class voters all the time and we don't need to do it. And let me give you an example of what I mean is if you say, as I heard on television, on a nameless station, uh, a a nameless host who I happen to admire a great deal, uh, (laughs) began, um, uh, um, right, the the first words out of her mouth when the Dobbs, uh, right, the day after the Dobbs decision uh, 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 rolled back Roe v. Wade, began by saying, this is a disaster for uh, poor women of color. Now, she was absolutely right. From a rational standpoint, that is absolutely correct. But it turns out when you do that, you're practicing what what, what uh, I sometimes call inclusion by subtraction rather than inclusion by addition. Because what you're doing very often is people who are not poor women of color are immediately, they're thinking other. And you're actually otherizing people in uh, uh, inadvertently when you don't mean to at all. Think about if you go the other way. Think about if instead you said, the full truth of it, which is this is a disaster for all of us who love freedom. This is a disaster for all of us who believe that we have the right to decide whether and when to have a child and who we're gonna have one with. It's especially a disaster for women because they're the ones who give birth to babies and they're the ones who have to to, uh, carry carry that burden. It's particularly uh, um, uh, a, a burden on women who don't have a lot of economic resources, working class women who can't just say to their boss, hey boss, I'm gonna disappear for a few days, I have gotta go drive 500 miles to a free state where I can get an abortion. And it is especially uh, uh, disastrous for poor women of color because they tend to have the worst, the the least, the fewest resources and the least abilities to be able to get away like that. Uh, And if you do it in that order, What it turns out, I've actually tested it. It turns out on issue after issue after issue, white working class people will then say, well, that's not fair to poor women of color. But if you go the other way, they turn off the message from the start. Uh, So you do a lot better on just another one other uh, uh, example. We use words that are over people's heads all the time. You know, we'll say implicit bias. Well, it turns out I've actually tested it. Less than 10% of Americans of any uh, uh, any race or ethnicity can tell you what implicit bias means. Um, uh, systemic racism. The term is absolutely imp- I mean, the concept is absolutely important. And you can talk you can talk to white working class people about that, and they will say, "Well, that's not fair," but they won't do it if you start out by saying, "You know, we have a huge problem in this country." with uh with um systemic racism all they hear is you're accusing me of racism and i don't feel like a racist and they don't know why and they also hear you're talking down to me because you're using terms that i don't i have no idea what you're talking about and and even even uh pe- uh, uh poor people of color are, have no more understanding of that concept if you if you ask them hey you know, there's this concept going around. You've heard about about systemic racism. What, what does it mean? Poor people of color have a gut level sense of what that means. You know, it means we've been screwed and we we continue to get screwed. And that's sort of the definition you'll get. But, you know, the idea that there are historical legacies uh, of the past that have gotten built into our laws, our systems that are today affecting people in ways that you'd think, wait a minute, that wasn't just 50 years ago. It's happening today. That's something that um, people don't know what it means. And so as an academic, I can tell you, never take your academic terms out in public. They do not belong there. No one knows what you mean. And they just reinforce the idea that we Democrats and progressives uh, look down on people and we're elites.
0: Well, some Democrats do get it right. It seemed that Andy Beshear in uh, Kentucky did a good job in that governor's race and Everybody's talking about the message on abortion that seemed to really hit home across all of kinds of economic and racial demographics.
1: Uh, he, he did it exactly right. And, you know, on an issue like abortion, actually, Celinda um, uh, Lake and I tested uh, messages back in the in the deep south in 2007. It was the first big, big project that I ever uh, I ever did in politics. And, um, uh, uh, my book had come out and people had said, Hey, do you, uh, do you consult? And I, um, I said, well, I, I, I will, but only if I work with a pollster, cause I don't just want to make stuff up and, and, you know, and say, I think this is effective. I actually want to test it to see. Uh, and I have a joke with people that the best, uh, um, the best check on especially male narcissism is empiricism. You know, you test out your ideas and you learn half the time that you're wrong. <laughs> but but um, we, we tested a message that I was pretty sure was going to work in the South because I grew up in the South. And it was a message that began something like this. You know, I, I, I don't know if you'd call me pro-life or pro-choice or pro-common sense, but I just don't like the idea of the government telling a woman or couple when they should or shouldn't have a family, based on somebody else's interpretation of scripture. That message beat by two to one, the toughest pro-life message that you could get straight out of your local preacher's office, uh, pulpit. And and the reason it did, it had so many pieces in it. It began by saying, you know, I don't care what you call me. I'm not going to be in a tribe here. Uh, it began there, uh, which immediately makes everybody listen to you. It's like, wait, wait a minute. This is a person who, who might be open-minded. I'm, I'm going to listen to the next thing they say. When you then say, but you know, I just don't like the idea of the government telling. Now you're taking the frame that's usually used by Republicans against Democrats or the right against the left that's anti-government, because in fact, the, the, the right has become the party of complete control over our lives, which is the opposite of what, say, Ronald Reagan would have preached. Um, but it, so so uh, it then says, you know, I, I don't like the idea of the government telling a woman or couple. It makes it about a woman or couple, because in fact most women don't make these decisions independently. They make them talking it over with the uh, with the person who's conceived the baby with them. Uh, and then it goes on to say, based on someone else's interpretation of scripture. And the use of the word scripture is really important there, because if you grow up in the south, you know that saying the Bible and saying scripture mean two different things. The second one says, oh yeah, this person understands people, understands and cares about people like me. And so it's those kind of what seem like really small changes in language that can make enormous differences. If I can give just one more example like that, I often I often describe this in terms of, my, my background is as a psychologist and and neuroscientist. And the basic idea that that informs my thinking about uh how to talk to voters is is and this is what got me to write the book because i was just so pissed off at watching democrat after democrat <laughs> lose uh lose winnable after winnable elections i mean at that time 2007 we had only had one democrat bill clinton elected and re-elected to the presidency since franklin roosevelt 70 years earlier i mean it's it was an amazing thing if you think about that, that our record could be that bad. And it's because we loved, to, you know, the other side would talk values and we talk plans. And, and I don't know about you, but I, I remember, and I still tear up when I hear um, Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, uh, but I don't remember him ever delivering the I Have a Plan speech. And so, you know, uh, uh, minor wording changes, like something like if you say, uh, if you say the underemployed, you know, we need to do something, something for the underemployed. First problem is no one knows who you're talking about. Yeah. They think that they think you're talking about people who decided they don't want to they don't want to work that many hours. Um, uh, the other thing about it is any construction that is the blank takes real people with pain lined faces and difficult line, lives and turns them into nameless, faceless abstractions. You want to do the exact opposite. Instead of saying the uh, the underemployed, why don't you talk about people who are having to work two, three jobs just to put food on the table for their family? And notice how I can put emotion in my voice with
0: that. Yeah.
1: Anytime you want to say the blank, if you're a Democrat <laughs> or progressive-
0: Stop it. Throw that out. <laughs> Stop so it. Yeah,
1: it's always- who.
0: Yeah, by the way, we started this conversation talking about the Bashir ad. And if people don't know about it, it was on a difficult issue of abortion in the South, Andy Bashir, and he had a young woman and she happened to be white. Uh, I'm sure that was a choice. Talk about, do you want someone like me who was assaulted by their stepfather having to have that child? And that was emotion. That was I want to talk to you about a particular message that Democrats seem to be hammering on, and it's the issue of democracy itself. People are saying this is the most important election of our time. We may not have a democracy. What do you think about that?
1: Gina, it's a great question. And... Um and it's a great question because democracy is as abstract a term as you can get. And you normally want to stay away from abstract terms. The The flip side, is, and, and it's also difficult because, you know, I don't know about you, Mary, but growing up, it never occurred to me that there would ever be an election where I would think, uh, well, this could be our last. And if voters go the wrong way, it will be our last. And, you know, I'm not sure people really really feel that in their guts yet that Donald Trump has told us what he intends to do you know uh, the biggest mistake that the Germans did uh, in the 1920s was to let uh, was to let Hitler out of, out of prison after a few months after he made a, a a coup attempt and during that time he wrote mein Kampf his you know his memoir uh, or the first volume of it, and in it he said, you know the mistake I made is I tried to overthrow the government illegally. The way to do it is you win the election and then you dismantle it from the inside. And that is Donald Trump's playbook. He tried it illegally, almost worked, but didn't. Uh, and uh, now he's going the other way. And, and so the question is, how do you take a term like democracy and make people feel it? And and I think I think one way to do that, you know, I don't have a I don't have a great answer to this. It's something that I'd actually really like to uh, do a, a large scale message testing study on because we've got to get this one right. Um, but I think I think something as simple as saying to people, when you say democracy and freedom together, the way the president did, the way the vice president has done, the way Democrats did in the last. Uh, several elections you know year by year elections, even off year like 2019, 2020, 2021,, is um, they tied together democracy with abortion. And the reality is that if, um, if we don't have a democracy, it doesn't matter what position you take on abortion because your voice will never be heard again. And we have, a, we have a candidate for president who says, I will be dictator on day one. That is my plan. I am telling you now in advance. And boy, we need people in the center to hear that message because people in the center don't like that message. People in the far right, they like it. It's like, good, he's going to help me out. People on people in the center, that doesn't go well with them at all.
0: Do Americans have a short memory? So you have to keep repeating the message. I'm thinking that the way... Everybody saw January 6, 2021, yet you have it already reframed. You have some people calling criminals who beat on cops hostages because they were punished. Many friends of mine who have white male teenage uh, college students, high school students are really disturbed because they saw something on TikTok that talked about FBI inside job. Uh, The messaging on this It's really been astonishing in that something that everyone saw is now being reframed in such a way that it doesn't resemble what really happened. And it's making heroes out of people who committed crimes. And some of the leaders are doing that as well. You see, Trump says hostages, then Elise Stefanik says hostages. So how do you get around that?
1: Another great question. That one, to me is more tractable in some ways than the democracy issue. Um, I think, first of all, I think we made a tremendous mistake uh, in early 2021. I think that I said this at the time and my Democratic friends all thought I was crazy and that I was was, uh, authoritarian for saying it, that I said that there were 100, I think it was 147 members of Congress who voted against seating Joe Biden uh, his electors, even after the coup attempt. My understanding of the law, I'm not a lawyer, but I believe that makes you an accessory, uh, accessory after the fact, if you were not involved in the conspiracy in the first place. You know, when you look at um, at uh, a couple of young democracies, Brazil and, and Peru, this last year, they had coup attempts by presidents. And in both cases, they in Peru, they threw the president in prison right away along with all the members of the parliament who supported him uh, and in Brazil they didn't get they didn't get the, the president but they got everybody below him uh, and they scared the crap out of them and no one advanced any alternative narrative about oh these were freedom fighters and stuff and I, if, if, if there's a mistake we have made if you ask me uh, and I, I wrote about this in the political brain aside from the role of emotion in politics is that we on the left, don't understand um, aggression, and we don't understand bully dynamics, and we don't understand what to do when you're facing with someone who doesn't play by the same rules that you do, is that you can't allow, uh, I'll I'll just add, the Germans, you know, they made that mistake in the 1920s. They didn't make it again a couple of years ago when there was a, a coup attempt by members of parliament there either. They threw those people right in prison. And they, along with the lower downs, we just threw the lower downs in prison and we let we let the big mouse out there like Donald Trump. We let him out and just speaking, uh, creating an alternative reality and going on his victory tours and turning, uh, turning criminals into, into hostages. And the thing I would raise about that is that when the guy came after Paul Pelosi with a hammer and hit him in the head, We didn't collect, we didn't say, all right, let's let him out and we'll collect affidavits for the next eight years and then we'll, and then we'll bring him in. We held him because he was a danger uh, uh, to the nation. He was going to do that to somebody else. Uh, He was dangerous. He was a threat and he had proven it. Donald Trump and those 147 members of Congress proved that they were traitors to the United States they proved that they were dangerous. They committed uh, uh, insurrection. They belonged in prison. And you build the case against people like that while they're in prison. You do not let the other side collect AR-15s while you collect affidavits. It's a huge problem, and only the left would make it. If you think about Barack Obama, imagine if Barack Obama had led that kind of insurrection, what do you think would have happened What the would the right have done to barack obama now they would have gone way overboard because he was black yeah. you know, but but the but the uh, the right would would have understood in this case i believe correctly that you do not allow an attempted overthrow of the government and just go after the low level people and figure well maybe eight years from now when trump is present and can pardon himself. Uh, we'll we'll have enough affidavits to go after him. Uh, you put him in prison right away, and we should have done it. It was an enormous mistake, and I think we're really paying for it now.
0: Well, it's interesting you say that because with all of the research you've done, and your your background is neuroscience, and your book, The Political Brain, do you think that this country is so polarized now into Team Red, Team Blue? that even with your expert advice that it's getting more and more difficult to to for your advice to come through for it to work i mean look donald trump has made indictments into campaign fodder and court appearances into opportunities to spar with judges which obviously i couldn't do that <laughs> he's he tells his folks you're me when they attack me, they're attacking you. I don't think any of them could get away with that. So is that a problem right now that we have become that divided and polarized?
1: We have become phenomenally tribal. And it was a lot of that was started by by Newt Gingrich in the early 1990s. People forget the history, but, but, you know, before then, I mean, uh, uh, Tip O'Neill, who was you know the Democratic Speaker of the House, and Ronald Reagan, the most far right at that point Republican uh, we'd ever had as president, uh, and probably still is. I, I don't. I don't think you can really put Trump on a left right con- continuum. I think you can put him on a, a psychopath non psychopath continuum. But <laughs> uh, but uh, I actually I actually say it. My prior career was as a psychopathologist. As uh, a, okay. Uh, so I'm I'm not making that up. He there's a there's a uh, there's a measure called the psychopathy checklist, and he scores a 30 out of 30 on it. So uh, he meets full criteria for, for like that. But but um, but going back to that, um, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill used to they would fight it out when when Reagan was president, Tip O'Neill ran the uh, uh, ran the house, but then they'd go have a beer together on Friday afternoons and they'd laugh and they'd tell jokes about each other and about themselves and about everybody else. And they, and, and they had, they genuinely liked each other. Back then, um, uh, uh members of, uh, Democratic and and uh, Republican members of the house used to work out in the, in the, in the house gym at the same time. You know, now it's like, well, here's red time and here's blue time in the gym, you know? And, and, um, uh, that has become, as you're describing, it, it's become the greatest problem of our uh, of our time, and, and it's the greatest problem since the Civil War. And in many ways, I think, for many of the same reasons.
0: So it makes it makes what you do more difficult, does it? Because the things you do to appeal to emotions across party lines, when party is identity, it's it's tougher, I would think.
1: You know, it's tougher, but on the other hand, it makes it all actually all the more important. That the advantage that Democrats have always had, but we never used, is an advantage. Or I'll say progressives to be to be to be less less partisan here. The the advantage that, that progressives have always had, but they used it primarily in from a thinking point of view of of you know we have all this nuance in our policy. The biggest advantage that we really have has always been moral nuance. It's that we could say, you know, the right would say you can summarize the the the, uh, the values of the right as abortion, bad, guns, good, taxes, bad. You know, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like Neanderthal politics. It, it is. It's as if there's no nuance to any moral issue. We know the answer. Here's the answer. Until it becomes politically inconvenient, like with Dobbs, uh, but but for Democrats, you know, and for, for progressives, we've always had more nuance than that. We've always been willing to say, you know, um, let's take a look at abortion. Do most Americans believe in what the Republicans say they believe in, which is quote unquote abortion on demand? No. Nor do have I ever met a woman who would say at eight months pregnant. While she's just finished painting the baby's room, you know what? I think I changed my mind. Let me go ahead and kill this thing. I mean, that doesn't happen, but that's the story that the, that the, that the right likes to tell. And, and the left never responds with something as simple and emotive as, Do you know, I don't know if you've ever had, a, 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 had or known anyone who's had a, a late term miscarriage. Uh, at say five months or who's, or who has ever been faced with that. They came, went to the doctor to to see what's happening with their baby. They're all excited. It's five months and the doctor gets this grim look on his face or her face and tells them something that no expectant parent ever wanted to hear and tells them, you've got a choice to make that they never dreamed of as choice they never said I'm pro-choice and I'm proud. They never thought about it as a choice. That to them is a tragedy, and that's the story we should be telling about uh, about abortion. That that when that when that happens, when you get to the point where a woman's health or a child's health is in danger, that that is a tragedy that no no one in their right mind wants and frankly no doctor is going to give an an eight-month abortion to someone who if they if they were uh if they were seriously mentally ill and came in and say i think i want an abortion now the doctor would send them to a psychiatrist so but we don't do a good job of telling those stories uh, uh we focus more on we'll, we'll say um, I believe in women's bodily autonomy. And it's like, my, you know, what I say to Democrats now is the first litmus test of a good message is would anyone ever use it in a sentence?
0: Yeah, <laughs> this, you've given folks a lot to think about and a lot about what's at stake. I, I always ask my guests this, which because I have such great guests on, what question have I not asked that I should have? Because you have something important to say. On that topic,
1: hmm. I'm going to take on the most controversial issue of our time, and that is uh, the the war between Israel and Hamas right now. And if I were if I were advising Joe Biden on what to say about his stance on that, my response would be that it actually that is is a response that I think virtually anyone could hear and understand and actually move beyond some of their some of what they feel about it to just stop and just get a gut check for a second and that is you know what we're looking at in 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 Israel and Palestine is actually a tragedy of two peoples who have historical claims on the same land you know 3000 years ago that was that, that was land that was owned by the Jews. 2,000 years ago, the most, uh, the most popular Jew on earth, Jesus, uh, was born in a town in Bethlehem in the country of Judea, which is modern day Israel. So back then, 2,000 years ago, it was Jewish land. Then it became over the years, the Jews got kicked off. It's not like they were welcomed everywhere they went. Uh, and then a, a, a group of people came in uh, who then got kicked off their land. And, you know, the, the uh, rather than us saying, wow, one people's suffering is worse than the other. Uh, can't we start out by at least beginning by acknowledging our common, uh, our common humanity by saying, you know, when two peoples have claims on the same land, It's really brutal. And honestly, we have it in America because I don't see too many of us handing over our mortgages to Native Americans. And we do not have a claim on that land, whereas the ancient Hebrews actually did. So, you know, before you start saying one side's good and the other side's bad, you might want to just stop and ask yourself what would it be like to be thrown off your land? Two thousand years ago versus seventy-five years ago. My guess is it feels pretty pretty similar.
0: Wow, uh, we'll see if they're listening. By the way, full disclosure: Are you working for candidates this cycle?
1: I'm not working for candidates. I'm working for uh, uh, for some nonprofits, and uh, I am I have I have my fingers crossed at the moment that uh, 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 that the uh, Democrats will be able to use me for a. For a project helping candidates around the country get good, well-tested messaging, but we'll we'll see if that
0: happens. Nonprofits is that's kind of safer, isn't it?
1: <laughs> uh, it is, but yeah, and, and you know, when you work for nonprofits, you can work for. Uh, I do a lot of work on health equity, for example, and how to how to talk with people about the fact that it's um, unless you're unless you're black or brown, the differences in health care. Uh, uh, tend to be and, and and in health in general tend to be pretty invisible to you. And uh, interestingly, again, if you um, uh, if you you can you can talk to white working class voters about that issue and get them to say that's not right. Like during the pandemic, uh, I actually tested messaging on that uh, for for uh, for a, a group of nonprofits who do healthcare reform work and test it out. What happens if you start a message with, you know, the pandemic has been brutal on poor people of color versus if you start out with, you know, the pandemic has been brutal on all of us. And you say a couple words about how it's been brutal. You know, we've we've been separated from our friends. Many of us couldn't even go to the hospital to say goodbye to our grandparents. A lot of us have been sick. 20 million of us have have lost their jobs. Young people, uh couldn't start i mean they, god they get the way they got thrown out of school and they couldn't you know they couldn't continue with their educations there were no jobs waiting for them when they got out now take it to the people who um who are the most essential workers in america who we learned over the last couple of years are the most essential workers and that is those people who are going into those retail jobs in grocery stores those people who are picking our food and you know what those are heroes and I'll tell you what, um, it's amazing, white working class voters, uh, when I measured their responses to that, they heard that message and said, wow, I never thought about it that way. And it's just all in how you, if you make if you make people who are so easily themified uh, into some of us, if you say, this is what's happened to us, we've all been hurt, but this is a group of us who've been especially hurt then people say, oh, that's not right. Let's fix that. Versus if you say there's a group of people who've been hurt and and people feel like, yeah, but I was hurt too, then you lose them.
0: Wow. Well, thank you so much, Professor Drew Weston, for coming on Equal Time. And we have to check in with you later to see how this messaging works. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, thanks for, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And, and if, I, if I'm ever on again, I'll talk, uh, I'll talk as if I were a Republican.
0: So what's keeping me up at night? Well, I worry about how dehumanization of the other from across the border or right next door affects policy and how much we are willing to give or share. Do those who would lead us as president or in any other office realize they serve all the people, including those of a different identity or belief, including those who did not cast a ballot for the eventual winner? I write about this issue and more in my RollCall.com columns. Check them out. One listener's concern is one that touches on today's show, persuasion and how even smart young people easily absorb messages and disinformation if it's wrapped in an engaging social media package. I look forward to hearing from our Equal Time listeners for your ideas, comments, and suggestions. Contact me on X at mcurtisnc3. And I want to thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.